Greetings, and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and this episode features Econet News, Volume 24, Issue Number 8, August 2022. Flanagan's Ecologic, B Corp. Ecomotion is now formally a benefit corporation under California state law. Furthermore, and earlier this week, we were notified that we have been certified by B-Labs as a benefit corporation, or B Corp, after a two-year process that included amending our Articles of Incorporation. The distinction codifies our practices and guides our future. Certification is a huge stamp of approval. Our claims of being a deep green company, one passionate about the earth, have been scrutinized and proven. I salute our team led by Sierra and Elisa in the process of disclosing all clients and each job details, our financials, our resource consumption, electricity, gas, water, gasoline, recycling, etc., as well as employee manuals and practices. In the end, we got 84 points, enough to pass muster. We are proud to carry and promote the B Corp principles. We track and tighten our footprints. We are fulfilled by our solar and storage works and their carbon offset values. This is who we are and why we operate. We are guided by our beliefs. We do pro bono work. We only advance projects that are sound economically and environmentally. Ecomotion has been doing beneficial work for some time. The B Corp status highlights this long-standing tradition of eco-conscious work. Ecomotion very much looks forward to joining a cohort of B Corps in the Los Angeles area and beyond. The Beehive of certified businesses is no doubt an interesting and committed group. As new members, we add our name to the following statement of principles. The Declaration of Interdependence We envision a global economy that uses business as a force for good. This economy consists of a new type of corporation, the Certified B Corporation, which is purpose-driven and creates benefits for all stakeholders, not just shareholders. As B Corporations and leaders of this emerging economy, we believe that we must be the change we seek in the world, that all businesses ought to be conducted as if people and place mattered, that through their products, practices, and profits, businesses should aspire to do no harm and benefit all. To do so requires that we act with the understanding that we are dependent upon another and thus responsible for each other and future generations. Quote of the week. We're a gas and diesel station. We do home heating oil. We have a tow truck. We also work on cars. We build floats. We build wharfs. We set moorings and we rent them seasonally. Plus we set them for people who own their own. We have a scow. We have a marine travel lift. We haul boats on land. We work on boats. So that's fiberglass and wooden boats, outboards, inboards. And there's all different types of boat work. Things like fiberglassing, hull spray painting, regular painting and varnishing. And then boat storage and other storage. We rig sailboats for people. We give boating lessons. We're also the ferry service between North Haven and Vinyl Haven. We have the hardware store. We have everything from nuts and bolts to paint and sweatshirts. Adam Alexander, 
fifth generation operator of J.O. Brown's Boatyard, North Haven, Maine. Sailing the Coast of Maine Rob Pratt has been sailing all of his life. His grandfather raced sailboats, as did his dad, and following their lead, so did all of his brothers and sisters. It's in their blood. And now Rob takes the summer to do his thing, at least a solid month living on board his 35-foot Ote sloop, Zephyr. Rob is a work colleague for whom I have great respect. He's founded four energy companies, including his latest venture in the Solomon Islands. For more on his works, check out our recent Flanagan's Ecologic podcast. Rob and I have been discussing sailing for years, and the notion of joining him for a main cruise began to gel two years ago, pre-COVID. Then finally, in late July, Terry and I were bound for Maine to sail the coast with Rob for a week, and what an experience we had. Terry and I fly to Portland, Maine, a day early to help provision the boat for a week. We sneak in our first taste of lobster at Luke's on the pier downtown. The next morning, Rob and I confer about food and his preferences, and Terry and I hit Whole Foods hard. Lots of organic snacks, veggies, fruits, cereals, almond milk, etc. The next day, Rob picks us up at our hotel. Between our luggage, my road guitar, and bags and bags of groceries, we were laden with gear. I quipped to Terry that Rob had better not show up in a Prius. Ha! He does. Somehow we squeeze it all in with a few square inches to spare. Mercifully, it's a short drive from the Portland, from the Portland jet port to Handy Boat Marina in Falmouth. There we buy ice and take the launch to Zephyr, where we pack the two ice boxes on board and stow the wine, ready for departure. The State of Maine before getting into the nautical aspect of this trip, let's take a quick look at the state of Maine. Its population of 1.34 million in 2020 makes it the country's ninth least populated state. What are the least populated, you ask? Number one, Wyoming, 581,000. Number two, Vermont, 623,000. Number three, Alaska, 724,000. Maine is the most sparsely populated state east of the Mississippi. It was added to the Union as the 23rd state in 1820. Four-fifths of its land area is forested. Maine is the nation's northeasternmost state. It is the largest of the six New England states, known for its rocky and rugged coastline. Many of its granite islands are covered with spruce trees. The state is 35,380 square miles in size. It comprises fully one-half of New England, it includes 2,300 square miles of inland lakes. The last glacial period was 18,000 years ago. At that time, ice scraped slowly over Maine's granite at a rate of a foot a year. This carved the granite to its form today, north-south striations, forming this wild and crazy coastline. From its southern border to its northernmost coast is to around 250 miles as the crow flies. But that does little to explain this coastline. It's a convoluted coastline of 5,500 miles when wrapping around the state's 6,200 islands. Rob says that this coast is his favorite cruising area. He's just back from doing the catamaran thing in the British Virgin Islands. That's a different experience indeed. 
The main coast is dotted with islands, quaint fishing villages, and resort towns like Booth Bay and Bar Harbor. Maine is an archipelago with more islands than Polynesia or the Dalmatian coast in Croatia. One-third of Maine's islands are 10 acres or more in size, 15 are inhabited year-round, and 20 have scheduled ferry service. Federal and state agencies own around 1,500 islands. Others are managed by the Nature Conservancy, the Maine Coast Heritage Trust, and its and local land trusts. From a sailor's standpoint, there are many islands to explore and many, many dangerous shoals to avoid. This must have been a shipwreck capital in the day. Today, sailors rely on GPS and depth finders to show us where to sail and where to steer clear. Sailors track the tides carefully. For sailors, there are three key hazards, rocks, fogs, and lobster buoys. Day 1, Falmouth to Sabasco. The adventure begins. We head north, beginning of our 250-mile voyage up the coast. I am immediately struck by the preponderance of lobster pots and their buoys that severely challenge boaters. Unregulated as to where they can be dropped, they form an endless, week-long obstacle course. We motor through Casco Bay, ultimately passing the island home of Rear Admiral Robert Perry, credited as the explorer who first traversed land and ice to reach the North Pole in 1909. He used sled dogs to do so, traversing Greenland on his route north. Later in life, he summered on his private Eagle Island on the main coast. He reportedly kept his sled dogs on the mainland to keep his island free from barking. Our first stop is Sabasco, a marina at one of Maine's many summer camps. The Sabasco Harbor Resort has the steepest mooring fee we pay all week, $50, but includes use of the pool and access to the restaurant and the bar there. We mount Rob's Torpedo electric outboard to the dinghy, attaching its shaft, battery pack, and rudder controller. It's quiet and clean and a bit temperamental. Rob notes that Sabasco's classic and huge and water's edge saltwater pool has been replaced with a brand new freshwater pool. It's clearly popular with kids and their parents. I jump in and splash about before we tour the aging resort and its outbuildings. We wonder how this place survived the pandemic. After cocktails of wine and cheese on board Zephyr, we dingy in again for dinner. The bar cafe is packed, and we suspect that labor shortages have caused Sabasco to close its formal dining room. We're lucky to get served, and we eat. Terry and I share our favorite combination of, of a lobster roll with clam chowder. A great meal we had. As we leave the cafe, there is no moon. It's totally dark when we're done eating. We head down the dock to retrieve the dinghy. For a while, and as our eyes become accustomed to the lack of light, we motor about in the marina, unable to spot Zephyr. From then on, Rob turned on the anchor light atop the mast to mark our boat when we go ashore. And yes, LEDs have made it to the yachting world, each captain familiar with the color temperature of his or her anchor light. The Maine Lobster Industry Maine's lobster industry is a $1.4 billion industry. There are some 3 million lobster traps, or pots, as they are called. They are hugely challenging for sailing. We weave through them fields of pots. 
The broader fishing industry is a lifeblood so, for so many in Maine. Back to lobsters, there have been good years of late. Some 120 million pounds of live lobster each year. It takes five to six lobsters per, to, to produce a pound of lobster meat. But that's the good news. The bad news is that climate change is drawing lobsters north as they seek cold waters. The lobster industry has already been shut down in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. That's worked well for Maine, given it, given it a big edge on the competition. But many fear that Maine's waters will warm and will no longer be suitable for lobstering in the coming years. In the coming years, the lobsters will go north to Canada. Another fa factor facing the industry relates to, to right whales. They are endangered, and there are only around 350 left worldwide. There are concerns that they are getting entangled in fishing lines, and some say in lobster pot lines, and so there may well be regulations to protect them. That could be another factor to restrict the lobster industry. Another factor is that haddock is, is the favored chum or bait. Haddock fishing has been regulated, re resulting in a shortage of the lobster chum and thus price hikes. And then the pandemic depressed lobster prices due to less demand. Lobsters were seen as an expensive luxury. Furthermore, fuel prices have risen, further challenging the financial viability of lobstering. I read reports of lobstermen tending to their pots less to save fuel. It's a tough way to make a living, out on the open waters year-round harvesting. Each lobster boat has a boom and an electric winch on its starboard side to raise the pots. On the trip, we have lots of time observing the lobster boats and their crews raising the pots, which they open to harvest lobsters. Seagulls love this, as the lobstermen discard seaweed, crabs, female lobster with eggs and lobsters that are too young or too short back into the sea. Day two, Sabasco to Five Islands. Day two and we are off to Five Islands. Tiny and hugely scenic, the Five Islands Harbor at Georgetown is perhaps my favorite port of call. We dinghy ashore and hike up the hill to buy fresh lettuce and tomatoes from the farm stand. We have cocktails on shore and then stroll over to the town dock which features a lobster shack and lots of red picnic tables on the pier. Terry orders a two-pounder and is in heaven. Rob and I grin and chow down on corn and steamers and our lobsters. What a mess. It's awesome. Later, back on the boat, we sing. Five Islands is an idyllic harbor, mixing of lobster and pleasure boats. We see this combination of strange bedfellows throughout our trip. We learn about resentments between the lobstermen and the yachties, folks like us sailing for fun. We are without their financial concerns and realities of, of the hardcore lobstermen, many of whom ply these waters year-round in all sorts of inclement weather and frigid temperatures. I get up early on day three for some guitar playing and a quick dip in the waters. It took me a while to take the plunge, pushing myself to go in to go for it. I think of my favorite cold water swimmer, Anna Rumsey. What would she do? Hey, you only live once. But after I dive in and hit the water, I reassessed my sanity. That's very cold water. I gasp and quickly flail back to our boat and its swimming ladder. Nothing graceful about it. Who needs coffee with that kind of stimulant lapping at our boat and its gray hull? Day three, 
Five Islands to Domaris Cove and Booth Bay. Day three was our biggest sailing day. We passed by Booth Bay and head to Domaris Cove Island. It had been inhabited years ago, before the pilgrims. Fishing, logging, and granite quarrying was important there. Its narrow cove offers shelter for only a handful of boats. We learn about its history. By 1900, the population had reached its peak and then declined. Today, there is only one private residence there. We visit a tiny museum. We meet the island's summer caretaker. She and her husband are given a small cottage. Apparently, people apply for these remote summer positions. What a way to get away from it all. We also chat with a young and quite buff young man who has sailed his 14-foot catamaran solo from Booth Bay. Impressive sailor indeed. We give him an apple and name him Tarzan. Leaving Domaris Cove and at Zephyr's helm, I spot a creature in the water that I did not recognize. To me, it looked like a dead dolphin on its side. What the heck was that, I thought. Rob saw it too and reported that it was a sunfish, a rare sighting. I learned later that the ocean sunfish is rarely sighted in the coastal waters of Maine. This is the northernmost point of their range, only to be found in Maine during the hottest parts of the summer. Given warmer ocean temperatures, they are being sighted more and more, laying on their side almost prehistoric. They are the heaviest known bony fishes in the world, from 545 to 2,205 pounds in weight. Sometimes they resemble a shark. They produce more eggs than any known vertebrate, up to 300 million at a time. We double back and head into Booth Bay, one of Maine's most popular tourist towns. There are two huge sailing ships in the harbor, one gorgeous ship from Australia with four spreaders for its stays that support its massive mast. The boat dwarfs a crew member on deck. After a quick dinner on board, we head into the Tugboat Inn Marina for showers and a hike to the local Hannafords to buy more ice. The coin-operated shower sure feels good. Day 4, Booth Bay to North Haven. Day 4 and we begin with Rob's signature omelets. Yum! We cross Penobscot Bay to North Haven. It's about a 60-mile crossing. And finally we moored at the J.O. Brown Marina and Boatyard. Talk about picturesque, old and classy. I read later that the shipyard was founded in 1888 and that today a fifth-generation Brown still builds boats there. We fill up Zephyr's water tanks with fresh water at the dock and top off our fuel tanks. I am struck by how little diesel we burned since leaving Falmouth. I love the boatyard's shop. A huge wood planer bears witness to lots of use. There's a huge pile of shavings. We check out an old dinghy mounted on the dock. Water pours into it and out of it continually. It's full of lobsters that boaters can take and pay for using the honor system. Energy in Maine. I spot Vinyl Haven's three wind turbines from far away. They were built in 2009. Three 1.5 megawatt GE turbines that rise 388 feet in height. Some call them eerie as their scale is so much larger than anything else around. They make up the largest community-owned wind on the East Coast. They are owned and operated by Fox Island Electricity Cooperative that serves the islands of North Haven and Vinyl Haven. 
The $14.5 million project was overwhelmingly approved by the co-op's members, 382 to 5, as a means to serve the power needs of the two islands' year-round residents and to lower their rates. Maine has a 4,875-megawatt summer peak power demand. In 2020, 79% of the state's electricity was generated by renewables, hydro, wind, wood, and wood-drive fuel. There are 102 licensed hydro facilities in Maine. Maine Yankee, the state's only nuclear plant, was closed in 1997. It operated in Wiscasset. There is no coal mining in Maine, and the state's sole coal plant was built in 1990. Today, less than 1% of the state's electricity comes from coal. The 102.6-megawatt Rumford Cogeneration Plant burns biomass and coal and is privately operated by ND Paper to serve its pulp and paper mill in Rumsford. Day 5, North Haven to Idaho. Day 5, and after exploring North Haven and its community center, we release our mooring and motor through the Fox Island thoroughfare, heading east. Both shores are lined with gorgeous summer cottages, reed mansions. Once through the thoroughfare, we set the course towards Idaho. Exciting is the fog bank that we encounter, and Rob turns on Zephyr's radar. There's lots of fog in Maine. It's formed by warm, continental air flowing over cold waters, causing moisture in the air to condense. Rob instructs me to get the foghorn blaster, to alert other boats of our presence, if need be. Through it all, we're dodging lobster pots. Out of the fog, we're close to Idaho, arriving in its wharf area in time to motor ashore and check out its tiny market. I texted my long-standing friend, Matt Hastings, who owns a house there, the Stone Cottage, just up from the wharf. There is no stone in this lovely, stick-built home. Instead, it was built by U.S. Supreme Court Justice Stone, in the 1920s. We miss Matt by three days, but stop by his house and find that he has donated it for a week to a school's raffle fundraiser. His guests are thrilled to be there and are warm, intrigued by this guy Matt, who has photos of himself with Hillary as well as George Bush in the upstairs hallway. I learned more about Idaho. For those without their own boat, it is accessed by ferry from Stonington, a village on Deer Island. Idaho is five miles south of Deer Island. It's remote and small, about six by two miles in size. I learned that it got electricity from the mainland in 1970 and phones in 1988. It is known for its unregistered island cars. Since there is no car ferry, only infrequent barges bring cars and trucks to the island, and they rarely leave, cobbled together by crafty mechanics. We heard about the island getting its first fire truck. One half of the island is Acadia National Park. There's good hiking there and freshwater Long Pond, where the fire truck fills its tank. Day 6, Idaho to Seal Bay. Day 6, we rise, have a pancake breakfast on the boat, and dinghy into the wharf. Vicky Rob can cook. We tap into the local internet at the general store and take care of critical communications. We then have a lobster roll lunch served up by the lobster lady. Two local kids, Gabe and Audrey, entertain us as we eat. Gabe is matter-of-fact 
about living on the island and shows off his worldly knowledge. He quizzes us, what's the tallest building in the world? Terry and I were stunned that he knows about the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Rob does straighten him out on some other urban facts. Back to Zephyr, and we're headed out of the harbor, doubling back on our way to Seal Bay, a pristine and secluded bay on Vinyl Haven. It is postcard perfect, and we work our way into Seal Bay's headwaters, bathing in the sights of the rocky main coastline, tidal waters and pine trees close to shore. This spot is remote. There are no moorings or docks or anything here. Just the splendor of nature on a nice warm summer day in Maine. We drop anchor, and without adieu, I take my second baptismal dip of the trip. This time Rob joins me, enticed by the bay's relatively warm water. The Lighthouses of Maine Today there are 63 lighthouses in Maine. There used to be many more, manned ones to boot. The first was built during George Washington's first term in 1791. GW commissioned Long Island's Montauk Point Lighthouse at the same time. In their early years, the lighthouses used whale oil to fuel their lights. Later, they were switched to kerosene. The lighthouse keeper's duty was to keep the wicks trimmed and to wrap the weights used, like a cuckoo clock, to turn the lights. Later, they were upgraded with large refracting prisms, Fresnel lenses, that increased their range and brightness. Today, Maine's lighthouses are unmanned, their lights and foghorns fully automated. On Ilaho, there is a lighthouse, Airbnb. Day 7, Seal Bay to Rockland. Day 7, we leave Seal Bay and double back through the Fox Island thoroughfare on our way to Rockland. It's our final destination. There we fill the water tanks, fuel up, gather the laundry, and head into the marina office. Terry disembarks, happy to be ashore after a week at sea. Rob and I then take Zephyr to its mooring. Without question, we were blessed with fantastic weather. No rain or prolonged fog, just sunny days, cool temperatures, and moderate winds. Nothing too severe for my sweetie. And more so, we are lucky to be Rob's crew for a week. He is a trip leader extraordinaire. We leave Rob with hugs and big thanks. He has a single night of space and solidarity before his next crew arrives. Terry and I pick up our car rental at the Rockland Airport in Owl's Head and drive north, stopping at a lobster pound for dinner. We then spend two nights at the Bar Harbor Inn, the perfect antidote to glamping aboard Zephyr. For at least 24 hours, and on terra firma, I feel the sway of the ocean, my internal stabilizers still not sure that they can shut down. That's it. Thanks for listening in to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.